Let's pray together. Oh, God, as the choir just sang, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending Jesus. And here's our prayer. May we get it. May we get it why he came. And let this teaching, let it be clear, just hide me. You have full access to all our minds and our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I recognize that this morning's subject is going to be painful for some of us who are here. Simply because we we cannot discuss same-sex marriage and not tap into the deep turmoil and painful struggle that is in the heart of the gay or the lesbian. Our subject this morning, and I really need you to hear this, our subject this morning is not does God love gays and lesbians, but of course he does. He loves all his children. Moreover, and I need you to hear this as well, moreover, God, according to Holy Scripture, is intensely, intensely focused with deep compassion on those who have been marginalized by society or pushed to the edge and alienated by the church. Once you put a human face to it, an acquaintance, a a colleague, a neighbor, a roommate, a classmate, once you put a face to it, then those strong opinions are suddenly tempered, aren't they? Now you have somebody that represents your deepest convictions. You say, what are you saying? Are you you suggesting, suggesting, Pastor, that truth is no longer truth? I, I did not say that at all, and you know I didn't. But once you put the face of Jesus on this struggle, truth becomes much more formidable than we first thought. Because the face of Jesus, and by the way, he is the one who said, I, I am the truth. Isn't that right? I am the truth. Once you put the face of Jesus on it, then truth comes garbed with an uncomfortable, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, proviso. Suddenly we all stand under divine judgment. And in the words of the disciples, who then can stand? But in the words of the gospel, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so recognizing the Supreme Court's decision regarding same-sex marriage is going to stir up some uncomfortable and painful emotions inside of us, let's quickly put the face of Jesus on our conversation. Open your Bible with me, please, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. And while you're finding Matthew 19, may I remind us all that on June 26, the Supreme Court of the United States, a deeply divided court, by the way, five to four, handed down the greatly anticipated decision entitled Obergefell v. Hodges. I have read Justice Anthony Kennedy's defense of the majority decision. Here is his summation of the argument, their argument. I'll put his words on the screen for you. 
No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would un misunderstand these, and I'm inserting the words same-sex because they have been the focus of this entire uh, uh, decision. It would misunderstand these same-sex men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit is reversed. It had said same-sex laws forbidding same-sex can stand. The Supreme Court in that one sentence reverses that decision. It is so ordered. And the decision is published. With this order, state laws forbidding same-sex were thus struck down. And same-sex marriage is now a protected fundamental right, as Justice Anthony Kennedy kept repeating, fundamental right in this land. We know where the Supreme Court stands. You already knew it before you came. Let's go to Jesus now. Open your Bible to Matthew 19. You maybe have already found it. Let's pick it up right here in verse 3. I'm in the NIV. You have your Bible. Let's go. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus replied, Haven't you read? that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. Hit the pause button right there. Jesus says, listen, don't you read? Didn't you read the creation account? In fact, He pulls a line straight out of Genesis 1. Let's put it on the screen. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. Don't you know? Look at Haven't you read that the divine complementarity of the Trinity, let us make man, was shaped into the human race from the beginning. The same complementarity, even as the Trinity complements one another, even so the human race is to complement each other. Haven't you read that God did not make them male in the beginning, nor did He make them female in the beginning, but because of that complementarity, that differentness, that is still an alikeness, just like the Trinity. The human race was designed and created to be in the image of God, male and female. Verse 4 again. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, now verse 5, and said, quoting the Creator, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two do not become male. The two do not become female. The complementarity of male and female are joined together in the institution of marriage into the very unity or oneness of the Trinity. Haven't you read the story? Verse 6. So, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
And with that last line, Jesus steps out of the creation narrative. Being the incarnate creator, Jesus adds a line to his own wedding homily. He just quoted it. A man shall leave his father and his mother, and as the old King James says, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Oh, and by the way, adding to my homily, what God has put together, let no one take asunder. No man, no court. Now you say, look at, look at. For a court to presume, you're wondering. For a court to presume, it was able to rewrite the divine definition of marriage, no matter how supreme that court would be. It would be, in the words of C.S. Lewis, patronizing nonsense, wouldn't it? And on a decision of five to four to rewrite it. But hold on, hold on. Let's not misunderstand the court. The court is not claiming to overrule God. It is not the Supreme Court's place to at all. They recognize that. Rather, Justice Kennedy's written defense of the majority opinion was based on the premise that marriage is a fundamental human right that cannot be denied to petitioners who mutually seek its benefits. That's his point. But I must admit, however, as I've kind of brooded over this, it was eye-opening for me, reading Kennedy, is how many times he cited uh, public opinion. In one place he calls it this shift in public attitudes. All of that as part of the rationale for their decision for same-sex marriage. And it made me think, wait a minute, if this secular court can rewrite the definition of God's gift of marriage to the human race in the garden, what could prevent them from one day rewriting God's other gift to humanity in the garden, namely the seventh-day Sabbath? If the court can appeal to a shift in public attitude this time, could they not appeal to a shift in public attitude the next time? But of course. And when six of the nine justices are members of the church that claims it has already overturned the Bible Sabbath, I'm just saying, you can get there from here. Now, Jesus is saying what God has joined together in the beginning, no man is to separate. So here's the question. Where does the church stand? Our church. Let me put it on the screen for you. Seventh-day Adventist Church has an official statement on marriage. These are the words. By the way, these quotations, every quotation here is in your, in your bulletin, in that study guide. Nothing to fill in. Just take the quotations home. All right, here we go. Seventh-day Adventist Church. Marriage was divinely established in Eden and affirmed by Jesus Christ to be both monogamous and heterosexual, a lifelong union of loving companionship between a man and a woman. In the culmination of His creative activity, God fashioned humankind as male and female in His own image, and He instituted marriage, a covenant-based union of the two genders, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, spoken of in Scripture as one flesh." End quote. Coincidentally, just yesterday, after months of prayerful study and research, 
The theological seminary right here on campus voted a document entitled Biblical View on Homosexual Practice and Pastoral Care that includes this definition of marriage. Theological seminary. Some of our professors are sitting right here. Put it on the screen, please. Here is their statement. A marriage between a man and a woman is the Edenic model for all time. This unique heterosexual marital form involving the sexual union of a man and a woman constitutes the divine paradigm, the creation order for humanity from the beginning. This paradigm means that marriage cannot consist of the sexual union between a man and another man or a woman and another woman. This creation pattern of marriage between a man and a woman remains the norm throughout Scripture. It's for that reason that when the Supreme Court rendered this decision, the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists released this statement. I promise this is the last one. Put it on the screen. North American Division. The Seventh-day Adventist Church acknowledges the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Friday, June 26, legalizing same-sex marriage across the United States. Even with the Supreme Court's decision, the Adventist Church maintains its fundamental belief that marriage was divinely established in Eden and affirmed by Jesus to be a, a lifelong union between a man and a woman. While the church respects the opinions of those who may differ, it will continue to teach and promote its biblically-based belief of marriage between a man and a woman. The Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that all people regardless of race, gender, and sexual orientation, are God's children and should be treated with civility, compassion, and Christ-like love. I was kind of proud of my church for, for publicly going on record that way. Jesus Himself, you have to admit, at least here in Matthew 19, takes a rather unequivocal stance, wouldn't you say? Look at verse 4 again. Let's just get a, get a run at his next words. Verse 4, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be, un be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, verse 6, Jesus goes on, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now the, the story goes on. The Pharisees are ready. We'll put it on the screen. Verse 7, why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, verse 9, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Wow. How do we get from heterosexual marriage to adultery? What's going on here? <laughs> Jesus being Jesus, an equal opportunity afflictor of the comfortable. <laughs> Let him who's without sin go ahead, you cast the first stone. Russell Moore wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post the day that the Supreme Court's decision was released to the public. I have read it several times, and I'm going to tell you something. It, 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 just, it has an optimistic spirit to it, and I get so blessed, and I've given you the link so you can check it out later. Uh, let me tell you who Russell Moore is. He's president of the Ethics and Religion, Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Without quoting him extensively, I don't want to do that. Let me just run by you seven reasons for optimism, okay? I'm just going to fly these by you. This is Russell Moore. You can read the entire uh, op-ed piece. Reason number one, the church should not panic. 
He says, hey, listen, guys, the Supreme Court is powerful, but it's not powerful enough to put Jesus back in the grave. Oh, that's good. Number two, the gospel doesn't need family values to flourish. It flourished under Paul's preaching with Ephesus and Corinth and Rome. And oh, my, they hugely rewrote the divine ideal for marriage. But it's okay. The gospel can still flourish. Number three, the church needs to articulate what we believe about marriage. Marriage is a symbol of the union with Christ and his, his, his earth children. It's beautiful. Number four. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to let him give number four and not try to sum it up. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is number four. We, Christians, must embody a gospel marriage culture. We have done a poor job of that in the past. Too many of our marriages have been ravaged by divorce. Mm-mm. Here is this church, the collective church in the United States of America, vocally vociferous in its condemnation of homosexual sin. And all the while, the church is harboring within there with this strange silence, the heterosexual sin of divorce at the drop of a hat. I think the word for that is hypocrisy. Russell Moore goes on. Too often we've neglected church discipline in the cases of those who have unrepentantly destroyed their marriages. Just collective silence. Now, he keep, keep reading here. Permanent, stable marriages with families with both a mother and a father may well make us seem freakish in 21st century culture. We should not fear that. I love this now. We believe stranger things than that. We believe that a previously dead man is alive and will show up in the eastern skies on a horse. I'm so proud of Washington Post for letting him <clears throat> publish this. He's just saying, guys, it's not the end of the world yet. For we keep reading. We also believe that the gospel can forgive sinners like us and make us sons and daughters. Let's embrace the sort of freakishness that saves, end quote. Yeah, it's good. Number five, he says, you want to be optimistic? If we're right about marriage, people will be disappointed in getting what they want. Just you wait. Number six, we must stand with conviction and with kindness, with truth and with grace. Russell's words on the screen, Russell Moore, we must hold our views and love those who hate us for them. We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak with a Christian accent. Oh, I like that. We must say what Jesus has revealed, and we must say those things the way Jesus does, with mercy and with an invitation to live. And finally, number seven, we need to be on the wrong side of history. His words again, this is not time for fear or outrage or politicizing. We see that we are strangers and exiles in American culture. We are on the wrong side of history just like we started. We should have been all along, end quote. So where does Jesus stand? Verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, Whoa, you have raised the bar on divorce so high, Lord Jesus. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation, verse 10, between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. We just won't get married. Jesus shoots back. Verse, verse 11, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs 
who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Can you believe it? I mean, Jesus died. Starts out defining marriage and creation language as a union between a man and a woman. Then he gets to divorce and this very high bar for divorce. And now he's talking about eunuchs. What is up with this? But actually, what Jesus has just said about eunuchs is profound for a nation that by its own Supreme Court has been, in, has been, in, has been ushered into a collective conversation. What Jesus has just said about eunuchs, I have a friend who self-identified just a few months ago as transgender. And as I have listened to his, now her, story of a struggle that began in early childhood and has dogged her life well into adulthood, she shared with me the testimony of trusting God through it all. In fact, she's the one who drew my attention to these words of Jesus, words that for her offer such, a, such quiet solace to her soul. I mean, you think about what Jesus just said. According to him, you can be born outside the norm of heterosexual orientation, and it's okay. That would be someone born a eunuch. According to him as well, you can be led by someone outside the norm of heterosexual orientation through abuse, through rape, through initiation. Somebody led you out. That's okay. And number three, according to Jesus, you can choose to live your life outside the norm of heterosexual orientation, which, as Jesus describes it, is the choice to honor God and live as a eunuch, meaning one who chooses not to act out his or her orientation and sexuality outside the divine parameters of marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus is clearly talking about celibacy. My friend Stephen Payne loaned me a book by Justin Lee, titled the book, Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians Debate. Listen to Justin's struggle. I'll put his words. You have them as well. Put it on the screen. Justin writing, I've talked to many single Christians. This is a campus with thousands of single Christians. It's just the nature of education. I've talked to many single Christians who find the church a challenging place to be at times. But for single gay, now that's his emphasis, for single gay Christians, there are even bigger hurdles. A 45-year-old single straight woman may feel overlooked or misunderstood at, at her church, but she doesn't have to worry about being condemned for being straight. Single gay Christians face the difficulties of singleness alongside potential condemnation for their orientation. And while all single people face challenges in our culture, the challenges faced by people who are single by choice or because they, have, they haven't yet found the right person are different from the challenges faced by those who eagerly desire companionship but believe God requires celibacy even if they should fall in love in the future." End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, come on. There are those among us 
who self-identify as gay or lesbian, who follow Jesus with all their heart, but struggle with the celibacy that they recognize He is calling them to embrace. It can be a desperate struggle. As you're about to find in an email I'm going to read to you. It can be a desperate struggle. Which is why, now come on, come on, which is why the church, the community of Jesus must be, as the New Testament calls us, the household of God, the family of God. The church must be a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of healing for sinners, heterosexual and homosexual. The church must be a place of compassionate confidentiality where social media is not entered into its strategy to love all. You got that? It must be a place where authenticity is valued and where accountability is understood. The church, the 20-page document that the seminary just voted yesterday, this biblical study and statement on homosexuality reserves its last six pages for a pastoral appeal to the church. And I've pulled from those six these lines on the screen. While being faithful to biblical teaching about homosexuality, we must also seek earnestly to understand and empathize with the struggles and challenges that face those who struggle with sexual immorality. All persons, including practicing homosexuals, should be made to feel welcome to attend our churches. Hold the, hit the pause button right there. That's not the complete sentence, but I need you to get the first half of the sentence. All persons, including practicing homosexuals, sh should be made to feel welcome to attend our churches. As John just said a moment ago, if the church can't be that place, where do you go? Now the sentence goes on. While non-practicing gay persons should be welcomed into membership and church office. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. You are welcome in membership and in leadership. That's what they're saying. All should receive spiritual care from the church. I love Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the church. All should receive spiritual care from the church. We stand against any antipathy or hostility towards homosexuals as well as any cultural biases that fuel a lack of Christ-like love for them. We strongly affirm that homosexual persons have a place in the Seventh-day Adventist church, end quote. Amen. And to that, I say, we say, Amen. So after writing this sermon, I get an email from a student. I asked his permission when I wrote him back. Can I share this? He said, you may. I'm going to share all of it, a few lines. Pastor Nelson, ever since I saw the topic for this week's sermon at PMC, there's been something weighing on my heart. There's something I feel I should at least tell you even though I have no idea which direction you're going to go with the sermon or if you'll even read this by then. 
for my whole life I have struggled in dealing with sexuality. I very much believe that God's Word says that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. I very much believe that God has called us to surrender every part of our lives to Him, including our sexuality. The problem that weighs on my heart, though, is that whenever the church talks about sexuality, it rarely goes beyond this. I hear sermons about how we need to stay strong in Scripture in spite of what society does and that the church needs to do the loving thing and call sin by its right name. I wish that the church would be quick to listen and slow to speak. Whenever a person opens up about their sexuality, I wish people would know that they don't have the right, they don't have to jump right into the topic of sin. Chances are there's a lot of pain in their story. It seems that people have the impression that telling them about overcoming sin is like the cure-all. There is definitely a need for talking about it. When we go against God, we hurt ourselves and other people. But maybe, just maybe, most of that pain has come not from their sins but from the church. Maybe what they desperately need to hear before anything else is not how same-sex sex is sin but how Jesus can heal their shattered heart. I wish the church would realize and acknowledge how bad it has been and not try to justify it or water down the church's failures as if they're minimal. It'd be kind of crazy if the church even apologized for its failure in this area. And in the email, I did. I also wish the church would realize that one of the greatest things it can possibly give someone is a safe place to open up. I spent most of my entire life terrified of ever telling anyone, and as a result, I dealt with this by myself. I finally got so tired of crying myself to sleep and all the shame that I finally opened up to someone. Having even a few people to open up to has meant so much and it is, all, and it is almost impossible to overestimate the importance and value of it. Just hearing someone tell me that I am not disgusting has meant so much to me. I was no longer by myself. One more line. One thing that would help in creating a safe place to open up is for people in the church to listen first. Just staying quiet and listening to a person's story is so valuable. And then he quotes Ministry of Healing, page 143, and he puts it right here. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men and women as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and he won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. Applying this would be like people in the church mingling with those who are LGBTQ, listening to their stories, loving them intensely, and fighting for them to be treated with dignity, helping them to know that they will be their friend regardless, and then finally talk about Jesus' words, follow me. There are many things that weigh on my heart in this area. Though it would be hard to write it all down, I felt that it, I at least needed to say this. You know what? He doesn't need to say any more, does he? Church. Church. The same Jesus who spoke these words in Matthew 19 is the one who, speaking of mingling, hung around a well one hot noonday just hoping she'd come, and she did. This woman who had five men, and the one she's with now, sex but no marriage. 
comes up to that, well, you're a Jew, a Samaritan, you're talking to me? I mean, please. But Jesus sees in that broken heart that has been desperately trying to quench her thirst that she's gone to the wrong well. And Jesus, in a moment of gentle compassion, turns that woman into a grace dispenser for the rest of her life. Philip Yancey tells a story about him and Henry Nouwen, the great writer. They were actually talking about the woman at the well. And I want to read to you just these, these lines from that moment. That scene of Jesus and the Samaritan woman came up during a day I spent with the author Henry Nouwen, great author, by the way, uh, a psychologist, pastor, and dead. I spent I sp the time I spent with him in his home in Toronto. He, now, here we go. He had just returned from San Francisco where he spent a week in an AIDS clinic visiting patients who in the days before antiretroviral drugs faced a certain and agonizing death. Now and told Yancey, look, I'm a pastor. And as part of my job, I listen to people's stories. And so I went up and down the ward asking the patients, most of them young men, if they wanted to talk. Now and went on to say that his prayers changed after that week. How could a man of prayers change after that week? Listen, as he listened to accounts of promiscuity and addiction and self-destructive behavior, now and heard hints of a thirst for love that had never been quenched. From then on, he prayed, and I'm going to put his, his prayer on the screen for you. You have it in your study guide. You'll take it home. Here's his prayer. God, help me to see others, not as my enemies or as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people, and give me the courage and compassion to offer your living water, which alone quenches deep thirst. That's a powerful prayer, isn't it? How to respond to the Supreme Court's same-sex decision? Here's how. Pray the prayer. Live the life. Follow Jesus. And I say to that, we can all say, Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive the church. So boisterous. In identifying the sins of this nation, but throttled with a strange silence regarding our own sins. Forgive us, O oh God, and give us the heart of this same Jesus, please. And may the church in this country and the church on this campus turn a new page and walk in the footsteps of our compassionate Master. We pray in His name. Amen.